Good morning. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Okay, Luke, chapter 4. Um, last week in our study of Luke's Gospel, Luke emphasized Jesus' ministry in the region of Galilee. And he told us of how he was received with much enthusiasm as he taught in the synagogues and as he healed many people. However, not everyone welcomed Jesus with open arms. The people from his hometown of Nazareth, they wanted to sh- uh, him to show them special signs and wonders to, to prove who he was. He had basically came out and, and declared himself to be the Messiah, uh, but they wanted more proof. They wanted evidence. They wanted signs and wonders, and they lacked faith, and they were filled with unbelief. And when Jesus confronted their lack of faith, instead of repenting and turning to him in faith, they tried instead to silence him. Not only did they kick him out of the synagogue and out of the city, they actually tried to toss him over a cliff in an attempt to um, kill him. And uh, our Lord was able to miraculously uh, evade the mob that day, and he departed from Nazareth, perhaps never to return. For Luke uh, does not record another visit to Jesus' hometown in his gospel account. Whether or not he did is uh, perhaps debatable, but we don't have an account of it, at least in Luke's gospel. Well, today, we're going to pick up our account with Jesus, making his way back to the region of Galilee and doing more ministry there in a city called Capernaum. And our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. And the title of our study is going to be Astonishing Authority. Okay, Astonishing Authority. And we're going to see and we're going to note the people and how they were amazed and they were astonished at the authority of Jesus and the power that he displayed as he ministered to the needs of the people and in fulfillment of all that the Father had for him. And so that's what the Lord has for us this morning. I'm going to ask you guys, please rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and his word. I'm going to read through our text this morning from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I want to encourage you, do your best to follow along. Luke writes the following in chapter 4, verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Verse 38. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning here, Concerning her, so he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. He immediately and immediately she arose and served them. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, "You are the Christ, the Son of God." 
And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Verse 42. Now, when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. That's Pause, ask God just to lead us through this text this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather here in this place in a nice, cool environment. Lord, thank you for your provision. But Lord, we can gather free from fear of persecution, free from hopefully distraction, Lord, and really just set our mind and our heart to to hear from you, to allow your word just to uh, continue to do that work you desire to do in our hearts and in our lives. And so, Lord, we come this morning. I I come, Lord, and I anticipate, I expect you have a word for us as a church. But I also believe and trust that you have a word for each and every one of us individually. And so, Lord, give to us attentive ears and an attentive heart. May we be open to all that your spirit desires to say to us. May we have ears to hear what the word of God teaches us, what uh, what your spirit leads and guides us in. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We yield ourselves to your authority. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. The people in Jesus' day did not have a shortage of authority figures in their lives. There were, of course, the religious authorities, uh, like those of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There were political authorities, uh, men like Herod, and Pontius Pilate, and there were even military authorities as Roman garrisons were stationed throughout the land to ensure that no threats would pop up against the Roman Empire or the Pax Romana. In our text today, the people are going to be met with another form of authority, the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus' authority was something that was fresh, something that was different, something that was actually well-received and welcome amongst the people. It was an authority like nothing they had ever seen, like nothing they had ever heard before. And as we go through our text this morning, we're going to note the various aspect, aspects excuse me, of Jesus' authority and how he used it to serve the people. And as we note different aspects of Jesus' authority, we'll also note how it impacted the people. And my hope is that we can even make application to our own lives today. And so we're going to go ahead, we're going to jump back in to the beginning of our text. We're going to see what we can note about Jesus' authority and its impact upon the people. Read with me verses 31 and 32 again. Luke writes, Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. We're going to stop right there. Here in these opening two verses, we're going to note Jesus' authority in doctrine. For those of you who like to take notes and outline, this is the first section we're going to look at, his authority in doctrine. Okay, we note here in verse 31 that Jesus went down to Capernaum. Uh, Now, the city of Capernaum lied on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it became a headquarters of sorts for Jesus and his disciples. We're actually told in our own text down in verse 38. And that's Simon Peter. He had a house just, out, just outside the synagogue 
located there in Capernaum. And it's believed that Jesus more than likely stayed there during his time uh, in this area. In our portion this morning, we see that Jesus, as was his custom, he went to the synagogues on the Sabbaths and he taught the people. Jesus' ministry was not just a preaching ministry, but was primarily one of teaching. Okay? Over and over again, we see him teaching the people, okay? gathering together in the Sabbath, opening up the scriptures and simply exhorting people, teaching them. You know, Second Timothy chapter 3, it tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. And I think we can say woman as well, that the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, it is through God's word that you and I, that we are made complete, that we are thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that is why we place such a strong emphasis here at Calvary upon the simple teaching of God's word. Hey, we want to see people made complete. We want to see people thoroughly equipped. And so we're going to go through the scriptures line by line, verse by verse, and simply teach the word of God. It may not be as flashy. It may not be as entertaining as other places, but it is something that Jesus exampled for us. And for me, that's good enough. Okay, if Jesus went around simply teaching the word of God, that's an example we can look to follow. Well, we're told here in verse 32 that the people were astonished at his teaching. That word astonished, it it carries the idea of being greatly astounded or greatly amazed. The people were besides themselves in amazement. They were astonished at his teaching because his word was with authority. You see, Mark in his gospel, there's a a parallel account to this portion of scripture. It's in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, it tells us something important in relation to their assessment of Jesus and his authority. Mark states, They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see, the scribes of that day, they would speak from authorities. They would quote different rabbis, and they would say, Oh, Rabbi Hallel says this, and Rabbi you know, Gamaliel says this, and, and they would quote these rabbis in their teachings rather than teaching the scriptures themselves. Jesus, however, instead of speaking from authority, he spoke with authority. He had no need to quote someone else. He was the authority on the subject matter, and so he spoke with authority. We see this actually demonstrated in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of his more popular sermons. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. Oftentimes in that sermon, he would say, you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit uh, adultery. You have heard that it said you shall not murder. But then he would follow it up and he'd say, but I say to you, and he would give the teaching. He would give the uh, exhortation, the application. He did this when he spoke on murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love throughout chapter 5 of the book of Matthew. And so the scribes' teaching, it it was simply a regurgitation of what other rabbis had said in the past. None of the teaching was done with authority, like that of Jesus. Jesus taught with authority because he really had authority. He brought a divine message, and he was confident that it was from God. He wasn't just quoting from man, but from God the Father himself. 
How do we know this? John chapter 12 tells us. Jesus stated in John's gospel, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Jesus' words were the very words of the Father. And so no wonder they were astonished. No wonder the people were amazed, okay? Because God's word is astonishing. God's word is amazing. There is nothing like it in this world. The word of God, it is powerful, okay? And it is the absolute authority in all matters. Hebrews actually tells us that it is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. As Jesus spoke the word of God, it was doing a work on the hearts of those who heard it. It was penetrating their hearts. It was revealing their intentions, the intentions of their hearts, and showing them their need for the Lord. You know, God's Word, it it still has that same power, that same authority to do the same today. We need God's Word in our lives. We need it to lead us and to guide us in every facet of our lives. We need it to reveal the thoughts and intents of our own hearts. We need it to reveal not only our own hearts, but also the heart of the Father. As God uses His Word to lead us and to guide us into His will and into His ways. So, I think the exhortation, the application is quite simple. Let's get into the Word. Let's allow it to do that necessary work in us. Allow it to mold and shape you. Allow it to be the foundation you build your life upon. Allow it to have its proper place of priority and authority in your life. Well, let's continue on. We'll see what transpired on one particular Sabbath when Jesus was teaching in the local synagogue there in Capernaum. Read with me verses 33 through 37 as we move into our next section of our text, Luke writes, Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. We'll stop right there. Here in this section, we're going to note and see Jesus' authority over demons. Okay, His authority over demons. While Jesus taught the word with authority, we're told about a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon who began to cry out. Now, Demons and unclean spirits, okay, they are one and the same. And these words are used interchangeably within the New Testament. Even within our text, we see uh, both phrases used here. Though Luke refers to this demon as an unclean demon, please don't think that there is such thing as a clean demon. Uh, All demons are unclean. All demons are uh, defiled. They are impure. Demons and, and unclean spirits are actually fallen angelic beings created by God. You see, when Satan rebelled against the Lord 
and he tried to exalt himself above the Lord. Satan and a third of the angelic beings who had aligned themselves with Satan were cast out of heaven. And these angelic forces, okay, we refer to them as demons or unclean spirits, that followed along with Satan's rebellion, they are doomed to spend eternity in a place especially created for them and the devil, a place the Bible calls hell. Now, I want you guys to note a few things about this man who had an unclean demon within him. It's very important that you note these things, okay? I want you to note this man was in a place of worship. He was at the synagogue. This demon, he knew who Jesus was, okay? He knew Jesus was from Nazareth, okay? He knew about his humanity. But more importantly, he knew him to be the Holy One of God. He recognizes both Jesus' humanity and his deity. He knew Jesus was holy. He knew him to be pure. He knew that he didn't have anything, he didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Okay, just as the people there recognized Jesus' authority, so too did this demon. This demon, he knew that he was on borrowed time. That one day he would be destroyed by Jesus. He knew he was on the losing side and that one day Jesus would overcome the devil and his demonic forces. And as we note all these things about this man with the unclean demon, it reminds me of something that James wrote in his epistle. James wrote in James chapter 2, You believe that there is one God. You do well. For the demon, even the demons believe and tremble. You see, there are many today who simply think that if they say, well, I believe in God, or, you know, I believe in Jesus, that that will be enough to bring salvation to their life and and get them into heaven. And, And it is through faith that we are saved. That is true. But as we consider this demonic spirit, I want you to consider with me the facts. This unclean spirit, this demon, believed in Jesus believed Jesus was both 100% man and 100% God, believed Jesus was going to defeat the devil and his fallen angels, he believed Jesus to be holy and pure, this demonic spirit was even attending worship services at the local synagogue, and yet he was no closer to getting into heaven than the devil himself. Belief in God, it only proves you not to be a fool. For the psalmist writes, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Saying you believe in God means you aren't a fool, but it doesn't grant you automatic access into God's presence in heaven. You know, if someone simply says, oh, I believe in God, and yet lives a life that's completely contrary to God and completely contrary to his teachings, that person proves that they're, by their actions that they really don't have saving faith. They really don't have faith. James wrote more about this in James chapter 2. He said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? James writes about the type of faith some have that really has no fruit whatsoever. And he asks the question, can such a faith save that person? And the intended answer is no. He would go on to exclaim, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, I want to be very careful here. I want you all to understand. I don't want there to be many misunderstandings here. 
James is not teaching salvation comes through faith plus works. But he is simply stating that salvation comes through faith that works. There's a difference. It's not faith plus works, but it's faith that works. True faith and belief in the Lord will cause a change in a person and good works, they will be a natural byproduct of that faith. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 7. He he himself attests that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is one of the scariest verses in all of the Bible. Jesus said there will be many who will say they did things for God. But Jesus will tell them he never knew them. The key is, do we know Jesus? Do we have a developing personal relationship with him? Are we actively seeking him and his will for our lives? Because a saving faith will show evidence of that in our daily lives. It will be demonstrated in the things we do and the things we say, how we live our lives. Well, Jesus responded to this unclean demon declaring, be quiet. Uh, The Greek word literally means to be muzzled. Jesus told the demonic spirit to put a muzzle on his mouth. The translation of be quiet is actually a little softer than what the original language would suggest. Jesus wasn't messing around here. He's very forceful. Jesus did not need nor want the testimony of an unclean spirit to authenticate who he was and what his mission was. And as we go through Luke's gospel, we're going to see a number of different people who were freed from demonic possession. And often we'll see Jesus silence the demonic spirits. Because by receiving testimony from unclean spirits, Jesus could have been seen as working together with them. In fact, later on, Jesus will even be accused of being able to cast out demons because he was working together with the ruler of the demons, a theory that Jesus will completely tear down as illogical and without any substance whatsoever. We'll get to that later in Luke. Jesus didn't want to have any connection to himself and demons, and so he rebuked the demon told him to come out of the man, exercising his authority over the demonic spirit. The spirit threw down the man one last time, but did no harm to him and departed the man, leaving him in peace. Jesus didn't have to work up some uh, elaborate enchantment uh, to cast out this demon. He didn't have to go through some ritual or, or ceremony uh, either. With a simple command, he ordered the unclean demon to depart and the demon had to obey. Jesus clearly demonstrated his authority over demonic forces here. And the people, well, they were all once again amazed, okay, blown away by the authority Jesus was able to exercise over this demonic spirit. And as a result, word of Jesus' authority went out into every place in the surrounding region. Let's continue on in our text. We'll see what happened next. Verse 38, it says, Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. 
But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. In this section, we're going to highlight Jesus' authority over disease. His authority over disease. Verse 38 picks up with Jesus departing the synagogue and heading over to Simon's house. Simon was another name for Peter. Uh, Simon Peter brought Jesus home after their time at the synagogue. And I thought that's just a cool little picture there for us. Okay, What we should be doing as well. We need to make sure that Jesus comes home with us after church. Okay? Our life with Jesus shouldn't be confined to just these walls here at the church. Okay? Bring Jesus home with you. Don't leave him here at church. Well, as they entered the house, we find out that Simon Peter's mother-in-law was very sick with a fever. So evidently, uh, Peter was married. Hey, we don't know much about his wife. The Bible doesn't say who she is or what she did or any sort of uh, extra information about her. There is uh, one mention in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that talks about some of the apostles taking along with them a sister or wife during their journeys and, and specifically addresses Cephas as an example of one who did so. And, and Cephas was yet another name for Peter. Um, and so some speculate that Peter's wife may have traveled around with him as he did ministry and he taught in different synagogues. Uh, but other than that, we don't know anything about her. Uh, we see here in verse 38 that her mother lay sick with a fever. Now, this wasn't just an ordinary uh, fever that you may uh, have when you get the flu bug or uh, some sort of infection. Luke, who was an actual physician, a real doctor, he uh, described the fever as a high fever. Okay, the Greek word here used was megas. It was a mega fever. Okay? She was laid out sick with this extremely high mega fever, and they made request of Jesus concerning her, telling Jesus about her condition. Verse 39 tells us that Jesus came and he stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it left her. With a word of rebuke, he brought healing. Mark's parallel account states that her fever immediately left her. This was an immediate healing. You know, nowadays we may uh, have a fever. We may take some uh, ibuprofen or some Tylenol or something like that, or we may take a cool shower or maybe just try and sleep it off. Uh, to overcome a fever. This wasn't that type of case. This was an instant healing and a complete healing. But the end of verse 39 tells us that she immediately got up and served them. And I don't know about you, okay, but when I finally break a fever, I'm in no condition to get up and serve myself, let alone anyone else. Okay, I'm a I'm a little bit of a baby. My wife says I'm actually a big baby when I get sick, um, but it's because she takes such good care of me. So I'm just very grateful for her. Uh, but, you know, you, get, you, know you, you break a fever, your body still aches. You're still tired, okay? Um, you, you feel like you just got nothing left in the tank. And it was not that way with Peter's mother-in-law, okay? She was healed instantly and completely, and she immediately got up and served them. And I do want to note something that I think is very important for us to not miss out on here. Peter's mother-in-law was touched by the Lord in a very special way. She was supernaturally healed. And her immediate response was to serve Jesus and those who were with him. She served Jesus and she served others. And I think this is important for us to note because I think Peter's mother-in-law sets an example that should be followed by every person that has ever been touched by the Lord and supernaturally healed. Some of you might be thinking, well, I've never been supernaturally healed. Haven't you? 
Haven't we all experienced that in our hearts and lives? We've been touched by the Lord. We've been healed from the disease of sin. Jesus defeated death. He defeated sin, and we've been healed. We've been touched by the Lord in a very special way. And what should our response be? We should follow in the footsteps of Peter's mother-in-law. We should serve Jesus and others. I want you to consider your life and what Christ has done for you. How he's touched you and healed you from sin. How are you walking in the example that Peter's mother-in-law sets for us? Are you actively serving the Lord? Are you serving others? I believe this is something that should be a part of every single believer's life. Serving Jesus and others. Well, let's continue on. Looking at the next section that highlights several different healings that occurred later that day. Read with me verses 40 and 41. It says, When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. We'll stop right there. In this section, we're going to note Jesus' authority with devotion. His authority with devotion. Verse 40 begins by telling us an important aspect regarding the timing of the day. It tells us that it was evening when the sun had set. Why is that something that we should note? Why is that important? Well, because this marked the conclusion of the Sabbath. You see, the Jews, they counted their days from sundown to sundown. They didn't count them like we do based upon a time where it's like, okay, it's midnight, it's the next day, 24 hours later. That's not how they counted their days. When the sun went down in Capernaum, that marked the end of the Sabbath. And along with that, it also marked the end of any restrictions that would prohibit them from doing any sort of work. The Jews had made the Sabbath into something it was really never meant to be. They took something that was meant to be a day of rest, and they turned it into a day of rules and regulations and restrictions. The people, they were astonished they were amazed by what jesus by what they heard from jesus by what they saw from jesus word was spreading quickly but the people were prohibited from bringing their sick and demon possessed to jesus because carrying someone would constitute work and traveling too far on the sabbath was considered work and so they needed to wait until the sun went down before they could bring the people to jesus but when the sun came down they brought the people, and boy, did they bring them. Okay, Mark's gospel actually tells us that the whole city was gathered together at Simon Peter's door. Now, I want you guys to really imagine the scene here. Recreate it. Put yourself into this scenario. Jesus and the disciples, they've traveled into the city, and they went straight to the synagogue on the Sabbath morning. According to tradition, a typical synagogue service may last anywhere from two and a half to four hours depending upon the day and the readings that would take place. Jesus taught the people with an authority they had never seen before. It was powerful. It was astonishing. It was one of those days you wouldn't mind if the pastor went a little bit long, okay? After the teaching, but before leaving the synagogue, Jesus cleansed a man from an unclean demon. This also amazed the people, gave everyone something to talk about after worship service. Jesus then went to Simon Peter's house. He was immediately called upon to minister to Peter's mother-in-law. He came to her. He rebuked the fever, and immediately she was completely healed. 
She got up and served Jesus and the others. No doubt she prepared some sort of meal for them. It's been a good day, a full day, a day filled with emotional highs and all sorts of ministry. Jesus had come in from his public ministry. He was settling into Simon Peter's house, having been fed, and and I wonder what he was probably thinking at that time. Now, I don't want to add anything into the text here that the Bible doesn't say. Uh, The Bible doesn't say anything about what they were doing at the time or what their desires were, but all I can do is speak from my own experience, okay? For me, after a, a full day of ministry on Sunday and after getting something to eat and I'm settling in at home, you know what I want to do? I want to take a nap, okay? I don't know about you, okay? But I want to take a nap. It is supposed to be a day of rest, right? And, and so, uh, you know, I've, and I've talked to some of you guys before too, and I know that you like to take your Sunday afternoon naps as well, okay? I'm not the only one. But what happens just as the day is about to break and, and come to an end? The whole city shows up at Peter's doorstep wanting Jesus to minister to their sick friends and family. Note with me, Jesus didn't complain. He didn't tell the people to come back the next day or to come back during normal office hours. He didn't tell them to make an appointment. He simply ministered to them, to all of them. He healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons, showing once again his authority over disease, his authority over demons. Just as he had previously done with the man with the unclean demon at the synagogue, he did not permit the demons to speak. I think it's worth noting that Jesus actually laid his hands on every single one of the people that he healed. You see, it wasn't just a spoken word that brought healing to the entire crowd at once. Previously, when he healed Peter's mother-in-law, he simply spoke a word. He rebuked the fever. She was healed. And I am 100% confident that Jesus could have said, Okay, everybody... In Jesus' name, in my name, everyone's healed, sick. And, and with a word, he could have healed every single one of them. But that's not what he did. Jesus took the time to personally lay his hand upon each and every one of them. And I see here, and I, I think it's important that we note the compassion, the devotion and love that we see demonstrated here along with Jesus' authority. Yes, he had authority, but it was an authority filled with devotion and compassion and love. I think there's an important lesson for us in this. Jesus, he ministered to the people, he served them, but ministering to people was not his job, it was his life. It, It wasn't something that he clocked in for and clocked out for. Jesus was a servant, ministering to the needs of the people, and he sets an incredible example for us. You see, ministry isn't always convenient. Serving Jesus isn't a nine-to-five type of job where, you know, we clock in and then we clock out. It ought to be who we are, not what we do. We are servants of the Lord. It is our life. It is who we are. Listen, ministering to the needs of people doesn't always happen during the hours of nine-to-five, Monday through Friday. Or better yet, Sunday mornings from 8.30 to 11.30-ish, okay? Sometimes serving the Lord and others will interfere with nap time. (laughs) And we need to be willing to be the hands and feet of the Lord and do as Christ did, as he selflessly served the people. Now the text doesn't say how late the ministry lasted. We can get the sense or the idea that it went well into the night. 
based upon the fact that the whole city had made their way to him and Jesus took the time to personally lay his hands on each of them and had to be laid into the night. And so let's take a look at these last few verses and we're going to note what happened the next day. We'll wrap this up. Verse 42 through 44. It says, Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. Verse 44 says, And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. In this final section, we're going to note Jesus' authority over distractions. His authority over distractions. Despite what had been a full day of ministry, that no doubt kept him up late into the evening, we read here of how Jesus got up the next day and he departed to get alone with the Lord. We know that is what he was doing in the desert for the parallel account tells us in Mark. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus rose early a long while before daylight. Jesus got up before the sun and even broke. And he found a quiet place where he could be alone with the Lord and he prayed. You see, in our minds, well, maybe I should just speak for myself in my mind. After a long day and night of serving others and ministering to the people, I think we'd probably think the next day would be an ideal day for sleeping in and and getting a little bit of extra rest. You know, there is a reason why I take Mondays as my day off, okay? After a full day of ministry, you're spent. You've got nothing left. Here Jesus shows us something very important. Jesus was human. He got tired just like you and I get tired. And I am confident that after a full day of ministry, like he just experienced, that his human body was tired. I am confident that he needed to be refreshed and he needed to renew his strength for what God had next for him. And that is why he got up so early to pray. Jesus' concept of being renewed in strength, of being refreshed, was not sleeping in, but getting up early and spending some time alone with the Father. Time and time again, throughout the Gospels, we read of how Jesus would often get away and spend time with the Father in prayer. It was a time for him to be refreshed in the Lord, a time for him to hear from the Lord, a time to get his marching orders for what God had for him. Listen, if Jesus, the Son of God, made it a priority in his life to get alone with the Father and spend time with him in prayer, if it was something that he needed to be refreshed, something he needed to be strengthened, to get his marching orders for the day, how much more do we need to be doing the same? Jesus demonstrates, excuse me, for us the kind of prayer life that we should be modeling in our own lives. He had a regular, consistent meeting time with the Lord where he could get alone with God and hear from him, be refreshed by him, where he could get his marching orders for each day. You know, as I consider the kind of prayer life Jesus had, I realize just how much more I need to develop and strengthen my own prayer life. And and maybe you're here this morning and you're like me and you've come to that same realization. I'm not here to, to make you feel bad and make you feel like, oh man, my prayer life stinks, okay? I want to challenge us. I want to challenge you. Commit to the Lord your prayer life and and, and ask him for the strength to make it more into the example that Jesus left for us. And I would encourage you this next week, take this next week and I want you to purposely try and spend some time alone with the Lord in prayer on a regular basis and, and just see what happens. 
See how it impacts your life. See how the Lord ministers to you and and refreshes you. Well, the rest of verse 42 describes how the crowd sought Jesus. They came to him, begging him to stay. And yet in verse 43, Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. Why did Jesus not stay and and minister to the masses? All these people, the whole city is coming back out to him again. They want to hear from him. I imagine it had everything to do with the fact that he went to the Lord in prayer that morning. Jesus had rose early to spend time with the Lord, and during his time with the Lord, the Father gave him his instructions. Jesus knew he needed to continue going out, preaching the kingdom of God to the other cities, because he spent time with the Father, hearing from him. Though it seemed to be a perfect ministry opportunity, the masses were coming out. They wanted to spend time with Jesus. God had something else for Jesus. And I believe this brings to us another important thing to note in regard to our service to the Lord, specifically regarding our calling and where we are to serve. Listen, I want to tell you something that was shared with me very early on in my walk with the Lord as I started getting involved in ministry. It is a very important truth. Okay, listen carefully. A need doesn't always equate to a calling. Okay? A need doesn't always equal a calling. There was a need there in Capernaum. The people needed to be taught about the Lord. The people needed to grow in their understanding of who the Lord was. And they seemed, at least on the outside, willing to come and to listen. But God had something else for Jesus. God would meet the needs of those in Capernaum through a different means. It wasn't what God called Jesus to do at that time. Jesus needed to continue on teaching and preaching in all the different synagogues in Galilee. You know, sometimes we can get caught up doing something God never intended for us to do simply because we feel like the need dictates the call. And we can get distracted by needs. And we can allow ourselves to miss out on what God has truly called us to. And that's why it's so important that we take time and we pray and we ask God which of the needs around us are the ones that he wants us to meet. It may not always be the obvious one. It's this one seemed obvious, right? All oh, these people are coming out. They're searching for you. They want, they want more of you, Jesus. They want to hear you more teaching. They want to, you know, they need you, Lord. It wasn't the obvious answer. Jesus said, nope, time for me to move on. Jesus was confident in the need in Capernaum was not something he was to meet because he took the time to pray and to ask God for his leading and guiding. God told him to move on to the other cities and to preach, for this was the purpose God had sent him for. And I guess that the question that we must bring before the Lord and what we must ask ourselves is, what has God sent us for? What is God's will for our lives? You see, in our text this morning, I think we see elements of God's desire for us, some things that we can take home with us this morning. God wants us to be in his word. Because there is strength and power in his word. It completes us. It equips us. Not only does it reveal our own heart to us, but it reveals the Father's heart to us. God wants us to believe in him and to show our faith through our actions. We should serve Jesus and others because serving isn't just something we do, but what God has called us to be. We are to be servants. And God wants to hear from us as we commit to spending time with him in prayer. He wants to lead us and guide us to reveal his will to us so that we don't get distracted with things that he never intended for us.
And that is what the word of the Lord is for us today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather here. And Lord, we are, are blown away at your authority and how you demonstrated it, how you exercised it, Lord. The people were blown away, and so were we, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would be just that authority in our lives, Lord, that we would just submit and yield and surrender our lives completely to you. Lord, that we would take time to hear from you through your word, that we would take time to hear from you through prayer, that you would lead us and guide us into what you've called us to. Lord, that we wouldn't get distracted with needs that you would have other people to fill, but Lord, that we would be busy about what you've called us to and we would be serving you and serving others as you lead and guide. So Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this portion of scripture and I pray that you continue just to speak to us through it, Lord, as we head our ways. Lord, I pray that this word, we just continue to to chew upon it, to meditate upon it. And in, in this week to come, Lord, that we would set aside time just to hear from you on a regular basis to get into our word, into your word, to get into our Bibles, to take time to commune with you, to hear from you. And we might get our marching orders. Or maybe it is we just need to be still before you, Lord. And we're going to watch you do amazing things. Maybe it is you have something uh, a working in mind for us. Whatever it may be, Lord, I pray we'd be yielded to it, that your spirit would empower us to accomplish it. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.